It's nice to come back. Although, uh, for the first time, uh, I do this routinely, as you can imagine. I <clears throat> have, for a number of years, not missed very many of these. And having missed five in a row, one from illness and four from a planned absence, <clears throat> it, uh, and I haven't given any talks in the interim anywhere, I th- there's a little bit of nervousness, actually, in, <laughs> in thinking of being in front of people. It's not a natural inclination of my personality, believe it or not, to stand up in front of people and ramble on. <clears throat> but I get used to it. So I'm not quite used to it tonight, but I'm sure I'll fit right back in here. Uh, but I wanted to leave with just a little expression of the last five weeks, what it was like, because it was very different than the planned retreat I was going to take. <clears throat> As you might remember, uh, I got ill and when I was unable to come the Tuesday before I was going to be on retreat, and that illness turned out to be the flu, spiked the temperature, and uh, it then it uh, subsided uh, on Friday, which is when I was going to go down to Cloud Mountain and start the retreat. So I went down and packed all my things and got into the hermitage, a little room there, and then the temperature came back, and I started... <coughs> of being right back having the flu, except this time uh, there was some lung infection or something because <clears throat> I, I almost had to force breathe to get, keep myself breathing, or at least I thought I did. So when I started to go to sleep, I would get frightened that I wouldn't be able to breathe because I would forget to force breathe once I fell asleep. <clears throat> so I wouldn't allow myself to sleep. And, in fact, I got became afraid of sleeping. So uh, then I said, well, I can't go through <laughs> for a month. I can't, I can't do this. But I didn't, I didn't know what, I didn't seem to have a resource at hand. So uh, instead of putting myself into that kind of physical jeopardy, uh, Ellen came down and picked me up uh, two days later, and I came back up to Seattle and finished the month at our house. Uh, but it wasn't really a retreat. It was more just getting over uh, a month. And it took a month to renew my energy and really get over this lung infection. <clears throat> it was very interesting, though. I, the, what came through it was a, a tremendous respect and honoring of fear uh, and the power it has and the fragility of the exposure of illness, uh, where uh, there's no sense of even pretension of being in control whatsoever, and the vulnerability, and the just that thread of, of um, life that sustains us, called the breath. Uh, and uh, as I... Just the humility, you know, I can sit up here and um, speak about a far ranging of, you know, the mind and working with all these different things. Uh, And um, the practice, of course, sustained a kind of confidence uh, throughout. But when you're really taken to the edge of forcing the next breath in and not being sure 
of that ability to breathe, uh, everything becomes very uncertain and very tentative, uh, in which you are, which I could not pretend to uh, have an expectation for them even the next moment. Uh, and it was um, revealing in some way for me to go through that. And so it's like a tenderizing process, I felt. Uh, and uh, actually, uh, I was trying to work with the fear because once I got back home, the fear continued. And Ellen, bless her heart, she said, uh, well, why don't you work it with Meta?" And I thought, okay, so... I'm good at giving advice about metta, but not so good about actually. <laughs> it's not my first resource is to go to a technique. But um, I thought, okay, may I be safe and free of danger? But instead of saying that in some kind of um, cryptic way, I felt the safety and freedom of danger in the moment. So the, and what I saw was I would wake up in kind of a panic. You know, I'd wake up many times during that in kind of a panic and this terror would arise and I would, may I be safe and free of danger, but I wouldn't say it as a way to try to bring that perception. I said it in a way to confirm the truth of the safety I was already in. And then the fear couldn't sustain itself within the safety and freedom of danger that is inherent in presence and awareness. And so then it, it dissipated rather, rather quickly. Sometimes it would grab in a way that my consciousness would have to work to find that safety. Other times there was, it would arise immediately with the fear. But it was a, a renewing experience for me as to... Um, you know, how, how these words that we use are not really meant to, for well-wishing. You know, may all beings be happy. It's like, where is the happiness now? Where, let me call it forth. Let me see it. The perspective of this moment can be any perspective. Let me call forth this, the perspective of safety because inherent in awareness is safety. And rather than the perspective of fear, which is the inherent unsafety of the moment. And so it can, it actually just reframes the moment. It's much larger. The safety is much larger than the insecurity. And so I just want to bring, encourage that um, use of metta, which I had never learned before. Rather than as a kind of rote way to sort of set our consciousness um, in a direction of friendliness or, you know, just may I be happy sometime and I hope it's soon. Uh, like now, now, now. Okay, so I just wanted to say that and explain my month <laughs> and see if there are any questions or comments or dialogues that anyone would like to have. Yes, Margaret. I reminded Rodney of when we were dealing with death and dying and yes. whatnot. Yes. And I, I'm, I'm old. He says that uh, what terrifies her is not so much at her age of actual death, but of the 
process of being incapacitated and being ill, uh, being less than what you are. Right? It's fine to have the candle flame and then the candle flames out because then the memory of it isn't diminished in any way, either the self-referencing of that image nor other people's perception, right? But if the candle flame crackles or becomes distorted or becomes limited in some way, it's like someone who has Alzheimer's. <clears throat> I mean, are they, we going to remember them while they have Alzheimer's as the way they were? Are we going to remember them before they had Alzheimer's as the way they were? Or sort of the vacuous mind that can't remember? You see, and who wants to be remembered that way? In fact, uh, I was mentioning this the other day to Ellen. We were talking about this subject. And um, a mentor, a mentor social worker of mine, when I first got into social worker, one of the questions she would ask patients who were dying, <clears throat> when especially when they were sort of acting out from their dying, being angry or, or whatever, and making it difficult on the family, she would say, is this how you want to be remembered? Is this how you want, is this your final statement? And suddenly there would be this tremendous uh, acknowledgement of what they were doing and often a turning, you know, no, I don't want, I don't want this to be remembered, to be remembered like this. And especially for us that have been active or have been um, productive in a certain particular capacity when that becomes limited and we become less useful and what we, how we ever we define that. Uh, is this the way people are going to remember me? Are they going to remember me as the more active and engaged and uh, socially conscious person I used to be? Uh, these, th- this is a, an extremely important part that I can point that I think I can speak to uh, from the month I just had. <coughs> is that, you know, these are all the expressions, egoic expressions of us, all the images that we have created through the duration of our life. And illness takes that away. It simply eliminates the continuation of that theme. And when anyone who is terminally ill, if it's a a prognosis that goes for a while, is, is sliced away. They are essentially... It's like um, whittled away. Uh, they don't have the same roles in the family, of course, and friends, and etc. And the same work, jobs, and everything has been taken away. And finally, they're in bed and they can do nothing. They can't often even get out of bed to toilet themselves. Now, I mean, we can look at it from the tragedy of the human being in that condition and the nursing home image we all perceive of somebody sitting there drooling, or we can look at it from the point of view of consciousness itself and the evolution of consciousness. And some consciousness needs us to disrobe. We need to be completely naked in order to know what consciousness, fully conscious awareness means. And the disrobing isn't pleasant when we are attached to the robes and the color of our cloth and all of the but the disrobing is absolutely imperative for the evolution of that consciousness. Because the consciousness cannot evolve as long as it's being remained tightly contained within an image. 
And illness releases that image. Releases us. What is it that remains in illness? What is it that remains in fear? What is it re- that remains when we are completely bedbound, perhaps even unable to speak? What is it that remains? Because if nothing remains, then let's get over this whole this practice and get on with our life because there's nothing to it. But we are here to find the essential. What's essential when everything else has been eliminated, has been released, has been negated, which time and change will take away inevitably. Everything that is untrue, time has to take away. Time takes away the untruth of our life. Right? What is left is the truth. What time cannot diminish, what illness cannot interfere with, that is what is true. Now, if we're going to find what is true in one perspective, what better way to do it than through the course of an illness? Or aging? And look at the tantrums we all throw and getting there. Because that's where we have based ourselves in the untruth. And what time has to take away, will and has to take away, was never ours in the first place. We just assumed our place within it. It was never ours. What is out? What is there left? You see, the Dharma teacher doesn't last. Doesn't. The fear doesn't last, although it certainly says it's going to. But well, you know what lasts? Safety and free of danger. That lasts. But it doesn't last if you put anything up in front of it. If you put anything that changes in front of it as a holding, then there is no safety within what is being taken away. It's being taken away. How can that be safe? But if we find the safety that's inherent, then nothing else can be taken away. It's all gone. And it's there we have to eventually go to find our way through fear. Does that make sense? You see, the methods of the universe, they play, it plays hardball. But also hear, hear the kindness within the fast pitch. Right? Hear the kindness, hear the love. Hear what it, the intention of what, are, what the evolution that it's it doesn't know how to get this person's attention in any other way. It won't. It's had a life. We've had a life to get our attention, and all we've done is lost ourselves within what is changeable, what is impermanent, 
And it has no other way to get our attention except through taking away what we have held on to. And that's called death and dying and illness and old age. We better get there sooner than later and save ourselves the fear response. Other questions or comments? And all the techniques and methods we use mean nothing. They too have to be taken away. They are bridges across the attached holding of the individual egoic sense of self to the vastness of the presence and dangerlessness environment of the real, of what's left, of the endurable, of the infinite. That's all they are, are bridges. Some of us refuse to get off the bridge, or we'd rather go on the Fifth Street Bridge than the Ballard Bridge. I want the Fremont Bridge. They're nothing. But we use them as things themselves, as further materials. So I thought, okay, now I'll follow my breath. So you can't even get your breath. You're pulling in your breath like that just to be able to breathe. And I'm going to follow my breath? What kind of a technique is that? <laughs> it's like, it just takes me to the terror of the moment. Throw that away. I said, kept thinking, well, I'm glad Tuesday night isn't following me through this. <laughs> because I don't think you could have, or there have been only a few of you perhaps that would or could have acknowledged the human condition alongside of the safety and danger. The panic. You see, we think that what it means to be spiritual, we, each of us, quite likely, each one of us, carries, even subtly, a, a self-description or a description of what awake means. And then qualities of self arise that do not meet that description. And so we are in struggle with the definition of what's of what we hold to be awake and the expression of wakefulness in its off color form how does 
fear? How does frustration, annoyance, irritation? And I saw my mind kind of move to a kind of despairing. It's interesting because I don't, I'm not a despairing person. I don't, but it was just kind of a heaviness. And uh, I was astute enough to meet it so that it didn't pull into a story, but there was a sort of a heavy quality to the month. So, whoa, this is, let me just, let me just look out from this place. Let me just look from here. And if, if there's any slippage and awareness meeting that mind state, the mind state fills in the void with desperation or depression or sorrow or just the woe of one's life, the past. We just, well, you see how tentative the whole thing is. I mean, just a, just batting our eyes, just a flick of the finger, suddenly the past rushes in to confiscate our attention towards some kind of sorrowful life presentation, some sort of sorrowful, meaningless. So I don't know, whatever. It's just, it's just was. It's just the raw data, right? So the limitation of life, where does that meet the awakening of life? Where does the limitation, where, does the, where, does this, where do these things coexist? Because as soon as we say this should not be happening, then we only have one side of the equation. You see, what's the resolution where limitation and awakening can coexist? When neither is stated for what it is, that's where they coexist. When one isn't pitted against the other, when it's not a question of wakening up out of something or of getting over something, when this, when nothing is considered unawakened. Okay. Yes. So she says um, when she's on retreat, sometimes there can be a lot of fear and anxiety associated with the retreat, and the only thing that seems to save her from falling into that uh, momentum and conditioned mind is curiosity, and the curiosity offsets. Uh, the story, the compelling story that draws us in. And I think that's a real important point because curiosity 
it, that sense of questioning or wonder, right, is not a mental factor. It's not from the mind. It's from the heart. It's from awareness itself. An expression of awareness itself is a square. Like this is a, um, is it amazement? Amazement. Amazement's actually a very nice word. Amazement comes from the awareness itself, where everything has a kind of amazing quality to it, and the the curiosity comes from that amazement, from that sense, right? And so you begin, we begin not to make it into a, um, you know, to, to, to droll on about the miseries of my life, the story and all of the accompanying details of my woe, but a curiosity as to what, look at what is going on here. And that is when the whole thing changes. At that point, when the curiosity begins to strengthen, right, to a greater extent than the pull of the story, then essentially the game is over. In the sense that the curiosity will just continue to strengthen as you nurture the relationship with the mood or the emotional tone or whatever it is that's occurring, that curiosity will take on a blade-sharp, razor-sharp, cutting edge and the curiosity won't stop. It just keeps moving down because at every level there's a place of holding and we get curious about that and the pain of this and this, this and this. And so it slices through like a hot knife through butter when it gets very um, tuned. And so the curiosity is a very important facet of awakening itself. And it sometimes follows a sense of questioning. Questioning is a component of curiosity a uh, or a sense of just wonder about something. But basically it comes over and however it's being displayed is, wow, look at this. I can't believe what the mind is doing. Right? I can't believe where it's pulling me. I can't believe what it just did. That's what I was feeling this whole month. Is this just taking me out? And I thought, God, after 35 years... I'm afraid of going to sleep. I mean, what, give me my teddy bear. It's like, I am back to age three. <laughs> That's what you have to do, right? It's like, okay, let's have a good belly laugh here and dig in. Right? Let's just dig into this thing. Now, so, so you know, okay, so where, may I be safe and free? Suddenly, that phrase means something to me. May I be safe and free of danger? I can feel it now. I just say it. Safe and free of danger. How can that be taken away? Hmm. Now that's interesting. You see the interest? These are all heart. This is the heart's momentum now. This is awareness. Presence. You can say how, see how it offsets the tone of the mind, no matter what the mind brings forth. Whatever it brings forth, the curiosity can arise to accompany it. Boredom, right? listlessness, sleep, anything. Like, what's this? What's going Wow. As long as it's, it's seen fresh rather than in context with one story. Oh, I'm always bored. I'm just a boring person and uh, nobody likes me because I don't have anything interesting to say. 
That's one way to relate to it. Or you can go, what is this feeling called boredom? And to get to that place across the bridge of a technique is helpful. The technique bridge is helpful to get to that place of curiosity. Once the place of curiosity is reached, blow up the bridge. That's all we need is an ongoing relationship of curiosity to life. Now we can open up completely beyond ourselves, beyond the formula. Because awakening awakens itself. It's not due to our pushing and whipping it into place. It's due to reaching a kind of threshold where the curiosity takes over and then sends the whole thing is set free from the curiosity. Because the only reason we wouldn't be curious is because we believe it to be us. So curiosity represents the off, the, the um, wisdom of non-identification. You aren't going to be curious about anything that you go through if you're identified with it. You're just going to be miserable with it. That's the other side. So there's misery or there's curiosity. And at some point you'll start seeing that thing play forth in your practice. And you'll be more curious than you are miserable than you'll be miserable. And you'll kick around in that for a while and then something will happen where you get curious or something. You'll, you'll be clear enough in a moment and you get curious. And then the curiosity has a richness. And if you follow the curiosity, in which I would essentially, I would suggest is just give yourself over to it. Just show up for it. Don't go, don't trump it with misery. Uh, that's nothing compared to, you know, it's, I've got to go back and... No. So that's really the importance of a technique, really, is to bring us to curiosity. So the question is about what keeps us going uh, when we uh, have the many disastrous and disasters during the course of the day and the ups and downs of emotional life and all of that sort of thing. What keeps us going? What keeps us going? What nurtures us? There's only one thing, and it's not our effort. It's not our effort. It's our inclination. It's our intention. How you've inclined the mind. Where you have, where you have each of us, in some way or other, have taken, often non-verbally, an intentionality for ourselves. And it may not be fully formed, but the fact that you come here and you practice and you involve yourself more and more uh, in this um, change, this spiritual evolution, uh, means that an intention dwells within each one of us in some facet or way or another. And that intention needs to be sharpened, needs to be brought forth and cleaned uh, because it can be uh, sidetracked. And mostly we let it get sidetracked with worldly intentions to want and to have and to own and to be and to have a better image and all that. Those are worldly intentions. But 
as we begin to see that those worldly intentions don't have the payoff that supports a happy life, a fulfilled life, which usually requires a certain age and experience level, then we give up using our life for that intended purpose and more and more we come into the primary intention, which is this evolution of consciousness. And so it's, I think it's helpful to actually bring forth a verbal statement to that, in fact, and don't do it as a should, or I would love to be have a great spiritual intention, but I don't have it. It... <laughs> The only way you're, we're ever going to have and, and reinforce the primary intention is to see our way through the secondary reasons that we give ourselves away from the primary intention, all the things that we want in life that seem to take us astray. We have to own to those you know, tributaries, to those offshoots, and to really look and to see if those payoffs are as promised, you know, having a good image or, a, you know, whatever, a nice house or whatever it is that we want, it's usually around some sense of self-aggrandizement. Is that a pay? Is that worth it? Is it working? Is there? I mean, and don't think of yourself as being the person who, you know, is just not up to the task to make it work because it's not working for you and believe me, it's not working for any of us. And if you can get into a good dialogue, which is called Sangha, and look across the group and say, is it working for you? And they go, it's not working for me either. (laughs) You can begin to see that everyone holds our posture as if it does work because that's what it means to feel ennobled at this level and this dimension is to make everybody believe that your life is working. But it's not. For anyone, you scratch below the surface and it all bleeds. And so Sangha is willing to say, okay, it's not working for me. Maybe it's me, but is it working for you? It's not working for you. Maybe it's not me. That would be nice if it weren't me. Maybe it just doesn't work. (laughs) So we concede that it doesn't work. And now we can get over this. A lot of it was self-doubt and just feeling that we just weren't up to meeting life's tasks. Now we can look and see if it really will never work for anyone. And so we can look reflectively and contemplatively at life and see, wow, it's not working. Really, it's not working for anybody. And I always thought that director and that president was not the president. It's it's too obvious it's not working in that guy. So, is it working? You see, and as soon as then the heart sinks, there's a certain kind of despair because when you realize that life isn't working in the way we're pushing it, there can be a kind of despair. But that despair is actually the opening up of the primary intention. It's through despair that the primary intention becomes primary. And we think, well... Now I give my life to what? Everybody's telling me that it should be this way and it hasn't worked and now I, what, do I, what do I have? I don't even feel... See, so there's, that's the dark night of the soul when 
one intention is no longer working, yet you haven't based yourself well enough in the other intention for it to work. And again, that's where the bridge of technique can help sustain us. But then eventually, it's to acknowledge that life was never meant to move in the direction I was pushing it. It was never meant to do that. It was just culturally induced, but it wasn't inherent in life itself. What's inherent in life itself? Let's go to life. See what life's inherent message is, not what people tell us what life needs to be. That's just secondhand knowledge. Let's see what life itself, what's the, what is life based in life? First, we've got to get to where life is happening. We have to, we have to be awake within life to see what the messages of life are. We can't do it from the outside because we'll just second guess it. Well, it's to be noble, it's to be kind, it's to be... Those are all just nice-hearted messages of a dimension that's looking at life from the outside. Inside, life has its own statement, its own vitality, its own... its own life. And to surrender to that so that it takes over us rather than we program our life outside of life to kind of follow it in some way. Instead of doing that, to abide in it, to abide therein, to release all expectation of it all configuration of it and let it direct us. Well, how is it? How am I, what am I supposed to do now that I'm not moving in relationship to fear or conditioning? What, what am I supposed to do now? I don't have any... What, I've always, in my whole life, I've only reacted to states of mind. Now, if I'm not allowing that level of movement, what takes over? Life takes over. There's a moment of awkwardness there that doesn't last that long. So what we say, okay, I'm not going to move based upon conditioning, old conditioning, or fear. Now sit there until you (laughs) move from something else. And soon you will. Because it doesn't, it's not complacent, it's not passive, it's not inert. Good question. Um, he said that, uh, were you sick? Were you ill? Threatening him. Right. So he had a, a, a certain symptoms that made him think that he could have a life-limiting illness. <clears throat> and uh, he was coming from a stance of, um, of, of great confidence. And this um, 
took him to a, a vulnerability and a heart opening uh, in which he, the confidence was lost. Right? Absolutely. Right. 360. Uh, you know, it's not that... Um, 360, doesn't that go all the way? <laughs> You're well on your way to healing. <laughs> but I mean, let's just look at it for a moment because uh, I, I like to get knocked down. I mean, I, it's not ever pleasant, but I was knocked down this last month where you know, the, there's a way that egoically you begin to believe in the continuation of the theme of, you know, I um, take pride in being, um, you know, energetic and, um, you know, vital and in shape and all of that sort of stuff. And, and so there's a kind of way that that becomes more confident there's a, you get assurance of that, that the continuation of that. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just that you think of it as me and that without that, it's not me, right? And that the lack of confidence, I mean, where's my confidence? I mean, I've relied so much on my confidence. I've relied so much on my stability. Now, what, what's, so what, what vulnerability does is that it takes that away, often in a single wipe of the sweep of the hand doesn't it? And illness or any kind of vulnerable situation where you're in danger, suddenly what comes out from that vulnerability is as interesting as the confidence itself. And that is what comes out in the absence of confidence, the absence of the image, the absence of the assurance of continuation. And within that vulnerability... Is love. Now, can love coincide, coexist with confidence? Well, it can, but you cannot rely on confidence or it covers love. Anytime we rely on any aspect of mind or body, love has no access. But it doesn't mean that you can't embody confidence in a natural state, rather than as the assurance of something I have and I need for my workshop. You know, you can't rely on it. Or there will be no love. But what has to be present in order for love to be, to express itself in being, is that vulnerability. The fragility of heart. Where we just don't know what the next moment will bring. And I cannot rely on anything to give me that assurance. And now if there's confidence, there's confidence, but it will be in the midst of, in the midst of that fragility. And that fragility is also called humility. And it's easily recognizable and will make 
your workshops much better received. Because everyone is looking for that. They feel it in themselves, but they don't give themselves access to it. They give they think they should have the role play the role of being confident. And therefore they undermine the capacity to love. Enough for tonight, huh? Thank you all very much.